The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to start in Daniel 12, and then by way of introduction, then we'll be in Revelation chapter 4. In your bulletin, there's an outline of the sermon today as we continue part 2 of Revelation chapter 4, which we introduced last week. So we'll look at the second part of it and wrap that up. And for those of you who haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We took a break during the summer, but now we've gotten back into it starting last week. Uh, We covered the first three chapters. Now we're starting on really the prophetic part of the book, part of Revelation that actually looks to the future. I hold the uh, opinion that Revelation 4 through 22 is all future. It hasn't happened yet. There are many Christians who say it's all happened and it's happening through history and that kind of thing. But to me, it's very clear it hasn't happened yet because of the nature of the content of the book. So we're looking at how the world is going to end. And we can know that because God is the author of history. So that's the big picture of Revelation 4 through 10, how the world's going to end and just amazing things that God is going to reveal and himself do. Daniel, who was a prophet 500 plus years before Jesus, he was like the revelation of the Old Testament. So Daniel is the Old Testament, what revelation is to the New Testament. Daniel was a prophet, and a lot of the content of the book of Daniel, God gave to Daniel, spoke of the future, or at least of Daniel's future. Some of that happened and actually was fulfilled during the time of uh the Greeks and their rise, uh, even reference to things that would happen in the days of Christ that were fulfilled in the book of Daniel. But a big chunk of Daniel is looking to the end times, stuff that isn't, hasn't even happened yet in our, our days, the last days. So that's what I wanted to read out of Daniel 12. Follow along with me starting at verse 1, the end of this prophetic book. And there's a lot that Daniel doesn't understand. He's confused. He's been allowed to see visions of heaven and all kinds of amazing and even to him very different and even weird kind of visions that went, many of them, unexplained. But a lot of that was about how the world was going to end. And so it says this in verse 1 of Daniel 12, Now at that time Michael, the great prince, that's a, one of God's good angels, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's the great tribulation that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 that John talks about in the book of Revelation, it is still yet future, same context. This is a worldwide great tribulation. A time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, this is in the future, your people, the Israelites, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. That's resurrection. But the others who don't believe to disgrace and everlasting contempt, that would be in hell, verse 3, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, that's believers, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Verse 4. Here's the key. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. So in other words, God's got all this information he's giving Daniel, but a lot of it goes uninterpreted for Daniel. Seal it up. I'm not going to reveal the meaning of a lot of this at this time. As a matter of fact, I will reveal a lot of this at the end times, in the latter days. Uh, Go down to verse 8. As for me, says Daniel, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all of these events that I've seen? Verse 9, and he said, 
Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up or hidden until the end time. Daniel, I'm not going to tell you what all this means and how it unveils. I'm not going to interpret that for you right now. This was about 550 B.C. Well, then when? Well, the answer, as we go to the book of Revelation, so go ahead and turn now to Revelation. The answer to Daniel's question is that God was going to reveal all these things about the end times, the great tribulation, the Antichrist, uh, the world empires, the great rebellion, the salvation of Israel, all that stuff that's going to happen, it would be revealed to John the Apostle around 95 A.D. as he was the last apostle, the only one that wasn't murdered for his faith as he's an old man in prison. And now Jesus reveals and unveils all this amazing, unbelievable information about the end times. It will now be what was concealed and hidden for Daniel is un hidden or revealed to John the Revelator, John the Apostle. And that's why Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 begins with the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Literally, the unveiling, taking that which was hidden long ago and it is now no longer hidden. It is open, it is revealed to John the Apostle through Jesus Christ, through His angels. That's Revelation chapter 1. And, and God was going to do this through what He calls signs. The Greek word sign, it means a lot of symbols and signs to communicate these things. And God has to use sign language because God is invisible. He is infinite. He doesn't have a body. We are finite. We are limited. We are physical. We are also fallen. And so God is going to communicate a lot of this amazing, unbelievable, mind-boggling truth through different kinds of signs. And so that's why the book of Revelation, it is prophecy, but it's got a lot of signs, signs through visions and all that stuff. And many of these signs are interpreted as God gives them. So it's not incomprehensible. God gave us the book of Revelation to understand it and apply it to our life. Revelation, contrary to what many Christians would say, can be understood and comprehended by us. And it can be practical. Actually, that's God's intention. He gave it to us to be blessed. So let's go ahead and look at it. Before we get to the last part of Revelation chapter 4, I just want to highlight one more time. Revelation one nineteen. probably do this for the next 30 weeks until we get it ingrained in our brain. This is a divine outline given by Jesus himself to John the Apostle of how this book is going to unfold. He says, Write for, therefore, John, the things which you have seen. The vision you just saw of me, the glorified Christ, write it down. Past tense. That's point number one in the outline of Revelation. Write down what you just saw. Point number two. Write the things that currently are, John, the things that are going on right now in your world and in your life relative to the churches. That's point number two. That's chapters two and three. They go together. And then the third point, the end of verse 19. And after you write down the things which are currently existence, the churches, then write down the things which shall take place after these things after these things write down the things that will take place after the church age after these things which is the future the end of the world the latter days and that begins in chapter four so let's go ahead and look at it chapter four that's why write down the things that will happen after these things chapter one verse 19 that's why in chapter four verse one it brings up with after these things two times in that verse so john gives all these chronological reminders we're going a very specific direction after these things. So chapters 4 through the rest of the book, all the way to 22, they haven't happened yet. They are yet future. This is how the world is going to end. It is amazing. It is exciting. God is in control. Jesus wins. And whose side are you on? 
If you're on Jesus' side, you're on the victor's side. You are the overcomer. You are the conqueror with Christ. That is good news. That's why Revelation is so encouraging to read, particularly if you're a believer. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Chapter 4 and 5 actually go together because uh, John is launched. He's actually invited up into heaven by God himself. And John is in heaven and he has his vision of heaven and what the throne room of heaven is like. And that's described in chapters 4 and 5. It actually goes together. It shouldn't be broken up into two chapters. But out of convenience, it was done that way. And so John is launched into the throne room of heaven. And the first thing that he sees with this great and rare privilege in heaven is he sees this throne that is at the center and it just dominates everything. And it is bright. It is glistening. And there is fire and there is thunder and there is noise and there is uh, brilliance and majesty beyond description. That is the very presence of the triune God of the universe in the form of a throne, which is God the Father. And then seven lampstands that are like burning, fiery, tumultuous torches, which represent the Holy Spirit of God that is immediately before the presence of God the Father's throne. And we're going to see in chapter 5, you've got the throne of God the Father, the seven spirits in their fullness, and then enters in the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, who is not just a Lamb, but also the conquering Lion, that is the throne room, and around the throne of God and the Holy Spirit and the Lamb are all of God's creations, redeemed and glorified creations, and also angelic beings that have been created and have existed since God first made them at some point in the past, and they are all around the throne. And Daniel 7 says that around the throne of God, there are thousands upon thousands who surround Him. And then it goes on to say, and myriads upon myriads. What is a myriad? A myriad is a number too big to even articulate or think about. It's, it's, I think it's bigger than a gazillion and a Google, from what I've been told. It is so big, there's no way to calculate it. Can you imagine? So you're looking at the throne and there are just myriads upon myriads upon myriads upon myriads of God's creation all centered on the throne, worshiping God. That's what John sees. It's overwhelming. And and to the best of his ability, he tries to communicate some of this truth to us, the basic things that we need to know. And we don't need to try to exhaust every detail and squeeze out every possible conceivable nuance of a meaning of maybe what it possibly might mean. That is not God's intention. He only revealed what he wants us to know. So let's go ahead and look at that. Let's see what God has revealed so we can know it, so we can apply it to our life in obedience. So we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 11. And I want to read there, uh, God the Father is introduced sitting on His throne, and then it goes from the throne to what surrounds the throne, and that begins at verse 4. And around the throne of God the Father, there were 24 thrones. These 24 thrones probably didn't always exist in heaven. They aren't eternal thrones. Daniel 7 says thrones were put there around God's throne at some point. So they aren't eternal thrones. Only God is eternal. Uh, And around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting. So elders in the Bible is always referring to someone who's like a human. So these are like human personages, whoever they are. And there's 24 of them. They're in a circle around the throne. They're sitting on these thrones. And they're called elders. Presbyter is the Greek word. Presbyterian, presbyter, elder. 24 elders sitting on the thrones, clothed in white garments. Golden crowns, crowns, Stephanos. There are two Greek words for crown. A diadem, royalty, regal. Jesus has many diadems. He has many crowns on his head in Revelation 19. These are Stephanos, the other kind of crown. A wreath. Could be a victor's wreath. Things they gave out at the Olympics. 
during John's day, among other things. The victor, the overcomer, the winner. And they have these Stephanos, these crowns of the victor on their head. Verse 5, and from the throne proceed from God's throne, flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This comes right out of the Old Testament. When God talked to Moses and God told Moses in Exodus 19, tell the Israelites to come down to the foot of the mountain and I will speak to them. And when they did, the first thing it says to describe God's presence is lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. Because God's invisible and He's so amazing and majestic and eternal, that's one of the signs that is used to communicate His existence and His power. And from this throne of God, because God doesn't have a body, there's, this is the only way to describe it. There's flashes of lightning and brilliance and sounds and peals of thunder. And la- that's another thing, a theme throughout the book of Revelation is all this noise going on in heaven. Sorry for those of you that like peace and quiet all the time. It is loud in heaven. Constantly. And there were seven lamps of fire. The word for lamp there is different than Revelation chapter 1 when it said there are seven like candlesticks lamp this is bigger this is a torch this is a massive flaming torch of fire seven it was sevenfold burning before the throne of god the father what is it which are the seven spirits of god this is the presence of the holy spirit of god himself verse six and before the throne god's throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal huge massive in the center and around the throne and there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind actually Better translation, there were four living ones, four living beings. The word creature is not in the original. It's just living ones. And there's these four living beings that are around the throne of God, surrounding God's presence. And they are full of eyes in front and behind. You've called, have you ever called somebody four eyes? Well, these were like 64 eyes, maybe more. Because they had eyes everywhere. Under their wings, on the back of their head, everywhere. Verse 7, and the first creature, the first living one was like a lion. In other words, its face looked like a lion. And the second living creature, as John looked, had the face of a calf. If you get bored listening to this sermon, just start trying to draw the details of these pictures. Uh, it's very interesting. The third flying living creature that was around the throne had the face of that, like that of a man. And the fourth creature had the face of like an eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. I believe these are angels and they have wings. Angels have wings. Somebody didn't just make that up. It's actually in the Bible. It's all over the place in Revelation. Six wings. They are full of eyes. The around and within. So they got eyes all over the place. And day and night they never sleep. They don't see. And they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, who is to come. And when the, the, the living creatures, the four living creatures, give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne to God, to Him who lives forever and ever, then the elders follow suit. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their stephanos, their crowns, their wreaths that they have earned or been given as victors before the throne of God, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou didst create all things, and because of Your will they existed, and they were created. This is amazing. We're going to stop right there, and we'll pick up chapter 5 next week. But the four things I want to highlight about the throne room of God here. Last week it was highlighting the very presence of God Almighty, and now it's everything else that surrounds God's throne. And by the way, everything is defined. Everything has significance. Everything is relevant only insofar as it is related to God who sits on the throne. You know, that's also true of us. 
Our existence, our purpose of life, our meaning, who we are, only has meaning as it is defined in relevance to God and Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? It is, because He's the Creator and He's the Savior. And so is, it is also true in heaven. We're going to see that. So let's look at these four entities that surround the throne of God the Father. The first is what I call the glorified elders. The glorified or perfected elders. They are glorified and perfected because they are now in heaven. There's a big theological debate over 2,000 years. is Who are the elders? Who are the elders? Well, the text actually never tells us who the elders are, so I'm not going to try to guess. How's that? But they're there for a reason. They're real. And let's just look at them. Two things about the elders that God highlights. So that's what we're going to camp out on. Uh, their description and their abilities and what they do. Uh, the elders, like I said, the presbyter, uh, they're mentioned 12 times in the book of Revelation. These elders, the 24 elders, they're always, for the most part, together. They function together. A college of elders. That word elder is the same word used all throughout the New Testament for an elder. It's the same word, presbyter, that is used for qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3. So I have been recognized as an elder at GBF, as have some other men. It's the same word. As a matter of fact, aside from the book of Revelation, every time the word elder occurs or presbyter in the New Testament, 100% of the time it always refers to a human male. Always, without exception. Uh, the word elder is actually a carryover from the Old Testament. And their religious leadership and hierarchy and so the term elder comes out of jewish culture in the old testament it's carried over into the new testament and 100 percent of the time when the word elder is used in the old testament it always refers to a human male always it's always a human I say that because some people think that the elders here the 24 elders are angels but i think they are human beings of some sort i think they're perfected human beings and reason number one is because they're called elders uh, let's look a little more at their description uh, they're around the throne particularly in a circle, because everything is focused on God. He is the one that deserves all glory, praise, attention, worship, credit for everything. He's the epicenter and circumference of everything that has significance in life. And even the way they're arranged points to that. It's like in the colonial days early in America, when they built a town, for the most part, right, they put what at the center of town? The church and a steeple that went high that would force you to gaze into the sky at God. That's why they made steeples. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off the earth. Get your eyes on God in heaven. And at the center of town was the church. And everything else was built around it because everything had relevance and definition, purpose and existence only as it was defined by God and His church and His Savior Jesus Christ. And that model comes from heaven in the throne room of God. Around the throne. There's 24 in number. I think these are 24 real elders. I think they even have names. Their names are not revealed here. But many times, angels are referred to all over the place, and every once in a while, God will name one of the angels. That was Michael the archangel. That was Gabriel. I think these elders are real beings, really glorified, and, and I would suspect they actually have names. And when I get to heaven, I want to find out if that's true. But they are not named. But there's 24 in number. Uh, some people think that 24 is a significant number. That, that means they represent a larger group. When I say represent, doesn't mean they're not literal. They are literal, even though they represent. You can have a literal group of people represent others, and it's not symbolic. We have the House of Representatives here in America who theoretically and supposedly represent us in what we want, right? Why are you laughing? Knock it off. So anyway, 
But those are real representatives, right? It's a smaller number of people. It is a specific number of people, and it represents a larger group of real people. So it could very well be that these elders represent others who are like them. And 24 is significant because in the book of Chronicles and other places, the 24 chosen men by God in Israel, they represented all the other people of Israel. The 12 tribes, their fathers, their families. So many times God would choose representatives to represent the people. A father represented his family. And on and on it goes. So it could be that they represent a larger group of people. Uh, they're individual beings. They're not just a mystical, symbolic group of a vision that they don't have true existence as individual entities. I think they are real individual entities, these 24, and I think they exist. And one example from Revelation I'll give is as the Revelation goes on, in Revelation chapter 7, John has another vision looking ahead to the future of when the tribulation saints who get killed are resurrected from the dead. And in Revelation chapter 7, uh, they give praise to God. And in verse 13 of Revelation 7, it says, And one of the 24 elders answered, saying to me. So one of the 24 starts talking to John. So if you're going to conclude that, well, the 24 elders, they're symbolic and they're not real people and they're just... Well, how did that symbol start talking to John? Sounds like a real conversation. He's called a heat. He's called an elder. One of the elders answered and said to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And John said to the elder, uh, my Lord, he calls him my Lord. Sir, he's having a personal conversation with this guy. My Lord, you know. And the elder said to John, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So this guy starts. So that happens more than once. One of the elders, one of the elders does this or one of the elders said this. So these are real individual beings. Uh, they're sitting on the throne, which implies, or not just implies, but shows us that they rule with authority. They've been given delegated authority and power by God. They sit on the throne. There's 24 thrones. They're sitting on thrones. And thrones means they've been given delegated authority and power by God. And that's exactly a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, 9. When it says and prophesies, as it looks in the throne room of God, it says that thrones were set up and the saints were given the authority to rule the kingdom. So whoever these 24 elders are, they're sitting on thrones with power and the authority to rule. They have, and they have authority from God. They're sitting on thrones. They're clothed in white. They were given a white robe. Uh, the terminology is very specific, by, by the way, these white robes. It says um, they were clothed in white garments. They were clothed in white garments. Uh, this is a called a perfect participle in Greek. And all that means is that these elders were not always clothed in white. A perfect part of it, perfect tense. At some point, definitively in the past, God girded them with white garments. In other words, they haven't always had these white garments, which tells me they're probably not angels. Because angels really haven't changed since the time they were created, as far as we know in Scripture. Angels do have white, but only when they're in human form on earth, as far as we know. But this is in heaven, in glory. So they have thrones, they're dressed in white robes, and they're called presbyters. And then finally, they, they are wearing these golden crowns called the Stephanos, these victor crowns. They were awarded those, given those. Now, it is not coincidental that in Revelation chapter 2, when God is talking to faithful saints and to believers who believe and trust in Christ, uh, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, uh, at the church at Smyrna that was the persecuted church, Jesus said to the Christians in Smyrna, be faithful until death and... And if you are faithful to death, I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the Stephanos of life. 
And that is repeated all throughout the New Testament. The crown of life is eternal life. James chapter 1, the book of Timothy, 1 Corinthians, the crown of life. The believer is promised the crown of life. That means eternal life. So God promises believers the crown of life in Revelation 2.10. And also God promises overcomers in chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2 and also in chapter 3 that to the one who overcomes, I will give authority to rule the nations. That is the right to rule. That's authority. And then explicitly in Revelation chapter 3, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. Revelation 3.21. So God is talking to believers and saints, promising them that they will receive a crown, a stephanos. They will receive the right to sit on thrones and rule with Christ. And then finally, the, the overcomers are also promised to be clothed in white righteousness. Uh, Revelation 3, 5, where Jesus promised the church at Sardis and, and all believers, really, the one who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. White garments. So white garments are the promise of future righteousness in heaven that Jesus will bestow on all believers when they get to heaven. And according to Revelation 19, these white garments are the righteousness of the saints. In Revelation chapter 6, uh, during the fifth seal in the future, speaking of the tribulation saints, believers who are going to get murdered for their faith during the tribulation, John has this vision in verse 9 of chapter 6. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of God the souls, only their souls, not their body, of those who had been murdered or slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice to God saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood of those who murdered us, of those who dwell upon the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. So crowns of gold, the Stephanos, sitting on thrones and white Robes are all promised to believers who overcome in heaven. That's why I think these are humans of some sort, maybe glorified humans that represent other glorified believers. They also they don't have wings like the living creatures that are definitely angels, either seraphim or cherubim. And apparently they have human form by the way they walk and conduct themselves and sit down on thrones. Uh, regarding their abilities, these 24 elders, they rule by virtue of the fact that they're sitting on thrones. And Jesus promised believers that in the future they'd get to reign and rule with him right which is the fulfillment of genesis 128 when god created adam and eve and he said name all creation subdue creation rule over creation this is the fulfillment of that mandate god gave humanity it hasn't been fulfilled the way god desired until in the future when we reign and rule on behalf of christ over all of creation even ruling over angels according to the book of corinthians so their ability, they get, they rule on God's behalf. They reveal information. They can talk. Revelation chapter 7 and 14 and following as he's giving information to John about who these tribulation saints are. They worship. That's probably the most important thing that they do all throughout the book of Revelation as they're referred to 12 times. They're constantly following the lead of the four living creatures, bowing down before the throne of God, worshiping Almighty God. So they lead, uh, they follow in, uh, in worship. They, they talk and they sing. They play, they play stringed instruments. Your English translation says harp, but probably not a harp. It's a stringed instrument. Some people say the organ is the most divine and heavenly sanctified instrument. No, it's the guitar, obviously. Stringed, yeah, amen. Stringed instruments. The 24 elders had 24 stringed plucking instruments and they worship God with those as they play and sing and lay them down to worship God. Presbyters. These 24 elders glorified, modeling worship perfectly for us. Uh, the next 
person we see around the throne is the Holy Spirit. So that's verses 5 and 6. And that's point number 2. So you've got the glorified elders and then next you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is described after the 24 elders briefly in this phrase. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Which is kind of interesting because the Holy Spirit is like in the middle of two things on the ends. What's surrounding the Holy Spirit in the description? You've got the Holy Spirit in the middle, and then on one hand you've got lightning and peals of thunder, which is kind of scary. And then on the other hand you've got this massive sea of glass, both of which speak of God's majesty and His transcendence, the fact that He is different and separate from His creation. Because He is transcendent. In many ways, God is inaccessible. He's eternal. He is invisible. He is infinite. He's wholly other. But at the same time, there's the Holy Spirit in the middle because the Holy Spirit is also part of God and Holy Spirit is the one who mediates immediate access to this invisible, eternal God as creatures. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He is a mediator on our behalf along with Jesus Christ. He makes God accessible for us. Think about it. This eternal God of the universe who's invisible, how can I go to Him and how can I have access to Him amidst His greatness and all the other people who are and creatures that are demanding His attention? Well, He's only a prayer away. Isn't that amazing? He is only a prayer away. That is immediate, instant access to the almighty, invisible God of the universe. And the reason that is possible is because the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Awesome. So God, yes, He is transcendent. He is wholly other. He is totally separate. And at the same time, He is a personal, intimate, accessible, immediately present God for the believer. He is transcendent. He is also imminent. It's awesome. And it's because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the way He's described there uh, as these seven torches that are burning, that speaks of God's judgment. And that's exactly what's going to happen over the course of the next, from chapter 6 on to chapter 20, is God's judgment being poured out. And it is the Spirit of God Himself who is going to minister the judgment and the wrath of God. And that's why He's described as this burning furnace, sevenfold. Part of the Holy Spirit's job isn't just to comfort, isn't just to teach, isn't just to console and be with and counsel. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to judge and convict, according to John chapter 16, verse 9 and 10, right? Jesus said, I'm going I'm to send the Holy Spirit and he will convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. That's what he does. And that's what he's going to do in the book of Revelation. He meets out God's judgment and wrath. By the way, this imagery of a, the Holy Spirit as a sevenfold lampstand comes right out of the Old Testament, as I said. And this comes right out of Zechariah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 11. The Holy Spirit also embodies God's fullness, and that's the number of seven. The number seven is used dozens and dozens of times in Revelation. And some people say, well, the number seven symbolizes perfection. And I'd say, well, not really, because you've got Satan described with seven heads. So not perfection as much as fullness or completeness. The full theory of Satan is described with seven heads and some evil, wicked angels are described with seven crowns upon their heads. So it's the fullness of evil that is incarnate. But that's what the seven represents, the fullness of God's Spirit. Totally complete, residing before the throne of God. And by the way, you've got God. He is always forevermore and inseparably a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the way Revelation began. That's what you have in the throne room of God. All three persons of the Holy Spirit together about to meet out God's judgment for all of history 
And then finally, just a comment on that sea. There's this sea of glass, as it were, around the throne. Well, what's that all about? Well, this comes right out of the book of Ezekiel in the description of the throne of God. It says there's a sea around God's throne. And the word sea implies many things. The first thing that sea means is it is vast. It is huge. And that's the throne room of God. Another thing that sea implies all throughout Scripture and also just in reality is isolation, doesn't it? What does the sea do? It separates people. It isolates people. The sea many times in the Old Testament speaks of danger and of judgment as God drowned the whole world with the sea. So many times that's what the sea refers to. Isolation, separation, distinction. A holy God being separated from sinners. A holy transcendent creator being separated from his finite creation. Separateness, transcendence, God's glory. I think that's what that represents. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to to bridge the gap, to bridge the chasm that separates humans from the Creator. So that is the Holy Spirit who will be active all throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Let's go on to the third category of creation or beings, and that's the four angels. Some would say that these are cherubs. It's a kind of angel. Some would say they're seraphim. That's another kind of angel. It doesn't explicitly say in this text, but the imagery is very parallel and similar to Ezekiel chapter 1. When Ezekiel saw God in heaven and he saw these four creatures, that living beings, and they had, they had wings. In Ezekiel, they had four wings, four hands, four faces. Here in John, there's six wings, faces of four different creatures, eyes all over the place. These are real beings. The four angels, whether they're cherubim or seraphim, I believe are a class of angels that God created in the beginning when He created all things, according to Genesis 1.1. They had a specific job of guarding the throne of God, the holiness of God, and protecting the holiness of God, and also leading the rest of creation in worship, because that's what they do. So they're close to the throne. They're full of eyes, which speaks of they are very alert and aware at all times. They never sleep. I don't know if you like to take naps or if you like to sleep. In heaven, there's no sleep. Sorry to disappoint you. But you'll never be tired, so they say. You will never be tired. But they're full of eyes. They're totally aware. They're constantly active. They have six wings. But what are they doing with their wings? Well, I want to read Isaiah. Because it actually tells us what the, the wings... The wings have a purpose and a practical function. And I think the wings are real. Because Isaiah, uh, who lived about 700 years before Christ, he was privileged with a vision of heaven. And... Isaiah 6, it says this, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, these living creatures, each having six wings. Why do they have six wings, Isaiah? Well, with two wings, they would cover their face because no creature can look on God without being consumed and destroyed. So they covered their eyes from the glory of God to protect themselves. And with other two wings, they covered their feet because they were standing on holy ground. And with the other twins, they're flapping. Man, can you? that's tiring. They have to fly for eternity and never stop. That's what they're doing with their wings. So that's probably what's going on here in Revelation chapter 4. So look, going back to Revelation, these four angels guarding and protecting the holiness of God and leading all of creation in worship. They don't have crowns as far as we know. They aren't sitting on thrones. They are a distinct creature and being from the elders who are probably glorified humans of some sort. So that's the four angels 
sitting around the throne. And throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, God is going to use these angels, again, to carry out His judgment upon the world as He wraps up human history. God is in control of all things. God does all things. God initiates all things. God is responsible for all things. But God uses His creation to carry out His plans. He uses angels, good and bad. He uses people to carry out His mission. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses others. So that's the four angels. And then finally, number four. Well, what are we to conclude from all of this? Well, not get lost in the minutia of all the details of who's who. That's not the point. Because there's one consistent theme all throughout. And that is that God is all glorious. He is majestic. And everything that He has created, whether it's an angel or a human that is glorified, all do the same thing. They give priority worship to Almighty God, the triune God of the universe. And that's what we are to do. And that's what we see at the conclusion of chapter 4. That God is worthy of worship. 8 through 11. So let's go ahead and look at it. The four living creatures, the seraphim or the cherubim, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night ceaselessly, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders follow suit. That happens all throughout Revelation many times. The four creatures lead in worship and then the elders follow suit and then the rest of creation. Like dominoes falling down before Almighty God. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. They'll cast their crowns before God the Father, giving Him all credit where credit is due. And so, God, He is worthy of worship. And then John delineates very specifically why God is worthy of worship. Because He is perfect, sinless, and holy. Sinless, perfect, and holy. God's holiness, His total perfection, it is awe-inspiring. And God's holiness, that means He is perfect. He's without sin. He must punish sin. He is a judge. He is pure beyond comprehension. And many times when human beings are confronted with the sinless perfection of Almighty God, they have a visceral reaction and they're lost in their own recognition of their own sin. It's like Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the vision of God, he reacted almost in convulsion saying, Woe is me for I am ruined because you are a holy God. When Peter saw Jesus do his, one of his first miracles, Peter, the only response he could have was he said, Depart from me, Lord Jesus, I am a sinful man. These are believers, mind you. That is their reaction to the holiness of God. Job, at the end of the book, after having this direct confrontation from Almighty God, Job says this in conclusion, Behold, I am insignificant. I lay my hand on my mouth. I retract, I repent in dust, cloth, and ashes. These are holy men of God responding this way. How are we going to respond to the holiness of God when we're confronted with it for the first time in heaven? It's kind of scary, actually. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be good. But it's also kind of awe-inspiring by virtue of how these men of God respond. Even John the Apostle, when he first saw the glorified Christ, it said he fell down at Jesus' feet as a dead man. Every other one of these guys said something. God, I repent. John couldn't say anything, just fell over dead. And I always wondered, I wonder if that's, how am I going to respond in heaven when I see Jesus for the first time? His glory is revealed. My sin is exposed. Will I utter something in repentance or will I fall down dead before holy God? Well, your sins are totally forgiven. That's the good news. Totally forgiven. And like Jesus did with John, he'll grab you by the hand, pull you up, embrace you into His kingdom and in His presence. And God is worthy of worship because He's perfect, sinless, holy, omnipotent, all-powerful. He says the Almighty God. 
three times refers to the God as eternal. He lives forever and ever. Who was, who is, who is to come. The eternal one. He's to be worshipped because he is the judge. He's the one to whom we all have to give account someday through Jesus Christ. And he is to be worshipped because he is the creator. He made all things out of nothing simply by the virtue of the power of his word. Amen and amen. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see that he's to be worshipped because he is the Savior. And I want to conclude with this. Well, what are the implications of this amazing vision? Well, they're very practical. And here are the implications of God's throne room and the fact that we're allowed to be invited to see God in all his glory. Uh, the throne room is the essence of life. It is the essence of life. There is ceaseless activity. There is neither sleep nor slumber. It's constant action, loud noise. But that is life. Contrary to Hell, where there is death, separation, darkness, pain, suffering, isolation. What else about the throne room of God? Well, it exudes God's majesty and grandeur. There's color, there's brilliance, there's fire, there's light, there's flashes, there's noise. This speaks of the majesty and grandeur of God, which leads to point C of the practical implications of this vision of the throne room of God. It reveals God's holiness and His judgment and should cause awe and fear on behalf of creatures, especially sinful creatures. So when we read Revelation 4 and 5, our response as believers should be awe and fear and worship of Almighty God. He's do that. D, God's throne is central. The rest of creation is defined in relation to the throne. God is at the epicenter of everything. E, another practical implication, everything in heaven, all, everything in heaven does the Father's bidding. Whether they're angels, redeemed humans, even the Holy Spirit does the Father's bidding. And we're even going to see in chapter 5, the Lamb of God, Jesus, does the Father's bidding. Everything is subservient to the Father's will. And then finally, F, practical implication, everything that happens on earth, in history, past and future, issues from the, from the throne of God, the plan of God. In other words, God is totally sovereign. He is in charge. We, that is our rock. That is our confidence to live this day in faith and the next as well and give Him all the glory for it. Let's go ahead and go to the Father who is sovereign and all-glorious. Thank Him for our time together. Father, we do thank You for our time together to worship with the saints. Thank You for every soul that You brought to be a part of this fellowship today. Thank You for the truth and the reliability of Your Word. Thank You that You've preserved this vision from John to give us a peek of what heaven is really like in the midst of so many false accounts of what heaven could be like. You give us the truth about it, what, what it's really like. And thank you for the reminder that you are at the very center of it. God, help us, and I know me, who we are just inherently self-centered. God, help us at least today get our eyes off self and get our eyes on you and your greatness that as a result our lives will be changed and you will be blessed. We give you the credit. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.